0: Grab your Bibles or turn your Bible on whatever you're using. Um, if you have a Bible that we've provided, um, we're going to be on page 981 today in Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three on page 981 in the Bibles that that we provide. Uh, well, I don't know how much you've thought about uh, planning a church in the Boston area um, and potentially even the challenges that are related to planting a church. But one of the challenges of planting a church near a city like Boston is just the transient nature. I mean, just think about it, think about yourself. Um, You know, I know we've got some locals here today that are saying, hey, I I grew up in Medford and went to Medford High, um, but probably a good number of us um, are here from different parts of the U.S. and even the world. You see, school and work draws many people to the cities, right? That that may be why a number of you are here today. And so the challenges related to the transient nature is that, you know, it always feels like people are leaving, right? Um, Not necessarily for bad reasons, but either school's finished and they're transitioning or relocating back, or or there's another job on the horizon. Um, On the flip side of that, the transient nature is there's always people coming, and so the beauty of, of connecting with new people, maybe even you're here today, It's you're new to the city and looking for a local church where you can do life and do mission here. Um, but as we think about school and work, I'm just curious, um, related to those, how many of you in the past two years have either filled out an application for school or a scholarship or put together a job resume? If you you feel good about raising your hands, okay, I see a good number of hands out there. Now, here's where I'm headed with this, and here's what I want you to think about it. What advice are you given when putting that application or resume together? I mean, we could do a quick Google search and just come up with like bukus of articles on this is how you apply for college and this is how you put your resume together. Basically, you're gonna, you know, some of the top points are gonna go something like this. Present yourself in a way that makes you look different and better than everyone else. In other words, you would say, hey, be yourself. Don't lie. Though That happens. But, Put your best self forward. Can anyone relate to this? Yeah. I and mean, when you're trying to get that job, you, you're wanting to highlight your strengths, and and hopefully they don't see too many of the weaknesses, right? Um, or that that application um, into school, you, you're wanting that man. We've got to have this person. They're going to bring something unique and good. To our school, the problem with this is that that we constantly live in a world where we're having to prove ourselves. Even if you're in a job right now, most likely it's this constant tension of having to measure up to prove your value, your worth to what other company or place that you're working at. And the problem is, is that oftentimes we carry this straight over. Into how we think God relates to us. We seek to try to make a good impression on God so that we can earn His acceptance, His approval. We're highlighting, look, look, God, look at all these achievements that I bring to the table. And when we come to our passage today in Philippians 3, Paul is gonna look at his own personal experience. As he's walked down that road, and he's going to say, guys, there is a better way. Not only is there a better way, that's not the way we relate to God. There is one way that we relate to God, and it is going to be through the person and work of Christ. And so this is the point of of the sermon today and of the text that I want you to walk away with, and it's this, is that we should scrap our self-reliant credentials and treasure knowing Christ. Scrap your self-reliant credentials and treasure knowing Christ. Let's go to the text. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The word of God says this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason. But whatever gain I had, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness that is of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. As you can see from the text, Paul's intensity is fueled by the fact that he used to head down this very same path. It's fueled by gratitude that he has been freed from this path of slavery to the law. And that now he has found the righteousness of Christ, the treasure of knowing Jesus Christ and making much of him. And so here's what I want us to say we're going to just break this down into two main sections. It's going to just flow out of that main point today. And the, and the first truth, this first section we're going to look at is that we should scrap our self reliant credentials. Let's go back to the text here. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 is a transition seam verse tying together the previous section with what Paul's about to share. He says, finally, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. This theme of rejoicing is nothing new for Paul. As we could look back and see in, um, in chapter 2, Going all the way back to verse 17, even as I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. And even as recent in chapter two as verse 29, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. He turns to this theme of rejoicing. Later, he's gonna say in chapter four, verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say Rejoice. Here he adds this phrase, rejoice in the Lord. He's reminding them, and it's a reminder for us, our joy is not contingent upon our circumstances. Though we may be facing suffering and persecution, our joy isn't contingent upon how well things are going in life. It's contingent upon the rock of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and so that we can even rejoice in the midst of, suffering. Jesus is enough. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He mentions here that what he's about to share with them is nothing new. And I don't think he's referring here to this command to rejoice. I believe he's he's referring to this What he's about to jump into, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. This this message, this caution, hey, they're people that are teaching a false gospel. He had probably in person taught them and warned them about this. And now he's reminding them again. And he says, this is a safeguard for you. Here's the deal. The gospel is, isn't something that you hear initially and then you move on to greater things. As you hear us say often, quoting Tim Keller, who says, The gospel isn't the ABCs of the Christian life, it is the A to Z. Or as C.J. Mahaney says in his book, The Cross in Our Life, he says, The gospel isn't like one classroom and then you move on to other classrooms. The gospel's the whole building in which all the classes take place. We will never move past the gospel. It is safe for you to often, to daily, to frequently meditate on, think of, and pray and sing the gospel. We need each other to remind each other of the gospel. And that's what Paul is telling them here in this passage. It's safe for you that I'm revisiting this topic. We all need to revisit this topic. And so here's what he does. He jumps in here in verse 2, and he goes on the attack. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, he he basically says, Watch out for those who add requirements to the gospel. He used this this word, look, three times. Look out, look out, look out. And, And this isn't like, hey, this is the one time you look out and you're done. This is, we should be on guard, watching for those who are living and preaching a different gospel. These three terms that he uses, dogs, evildoers, those humiliated flesh, he's not referring to three different groups of people. He's referring to one group. It's a group that we would call the Judaizers. Here's who the Judaizers were. They were Jews who had accepted Jesus but who believed and insisted that all Christians had to keep obedience to the Old Testament law. These were people in the church. You guys hear that? These weren't like some people that were considered outside the church. They would have been considered inside the broader Christian community. They accepted Jesus, but it was a Jesus plus gospel. Jesus plus gospel. Obedience to the law. And this is where we get in trouble. You see, if anything is added to the gospel, you actually lose the gospel. Jesus plus anything is nothing. And as one author has written a book who, are, who says this, Jesus plus nothing is everything. What was going on here in verse 2 was a Jesus Plus, something. This word, dogs, for all of you dog lovers out there. Just hey, you got to realize that Paul's in a different context. He's not thinking of your cuddly, cute. You know, man. Yesterday wasn't the weather great this week? Hey, anybody? Yeah, come on. Like we're getting teased. You know. You know, winter's coming back. Um, hey, we, we went hiking with the kids. Yesterday, and we love we love hiking up the Wrights Tower up in the Fells, um, man, great view of the city. And we're up at the top, and um, and 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 one of our kids we had with us was just like like kisses, like all kind of kisses to this dog that was just like, you know. Hopefully, we don't bring home anything from that, but just like love, like that is not like Paul would have looked. Like, what are you do? Like, he's not referring to that. Dogs in this culture were dirty unclean, nasty, and dangerous. There's no telling what they had been in, what they had eaten. That is how he's describing these Judaizers. The second term, look out for the evildoers. Doesn't that seem harsh? These are people that had accepted Jesus. He says, look out for the evildoers. They they were evildoers because in their teaching to do Jesus plus the law, In fact, they were teaching people to rely on themselves, obscuring their need for Christ. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Jump on down to verse 3. In verse 3, he says, for we are the circumcision. This this mutilate the flesh, is he's referring to circumcision here. Because if you were to go read through Acts, and specifically in Acts chapter 15, you're going to see the the early church was wrestling with, hey, we've come and believed in Jesus. Now, what do we do with all these laws in the Old Testament? Do, Do I need to believe in Jesus? Does a Gentile need to believe in Jesus and then get circumcised in keeping with the law? And they concluded, no, because that would obscure the gospel of grace, that it's not by works of the law but it's believing in Jesus. Paul's critique is so harsh because this false gospel was leading people astray and destroying their souls. We need to hear this. In contrast to the dogs, to the evildoers, to those who mutilate the flesh, Paul now gives the positive. Okay, if if you're to look out for those, what are the characteristics, what are the marks of those who truly are followers of Jesus? That's what he gives here in verse 3. And he says this, the true followers of God, the true circumcision are those who worship by the Spirit of God, they glory in Christ Jesus, and they put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, he says, look, you don't need to be circumcised, you're already circumcised. In Romans chapter 2, I think we've got this verse on the screen here. Paul writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God here's what happens. When you believe in Jesus, you are a new creation. Then we just read that 2 Corinthians five 17. You've been born again. You don't need to go do some laws and get circumcised. You need a new heart. And a new heart doesn't come. You can't do enough obedience to change your heart. Your heart's got to be changed by the Spirit of God. And so he says, this, this is the true circumcision. Those who truly know God, and he, he gives three characteristics. He says, we worship by the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. One of the most distinguishing marks of a follower of Jesus is the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit that God changes us on the inside. And it's how we walk daily by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. At redemption, here you hear us talk about spirit empowered and gospel motivated obedience. I obey, motivated by the gospel, and empowered by the Spirit of God. This is what ought to describe. Not just our Sunday worship, this worship he's talking about here is our lifestyle of worship. The way I work, the way I love my wife, the way I parent, the way I speak is is being described as somebody who is empowered by the Spirit of God. Second, we glory or we boast in Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, For by grace, You have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not the result of work so that no one may boast. God has orchestrated salvation in such a way that we can't boast in anything that we've done but only in Jesus. But these Judaizers, by adding Jesus plus something, gave them something to boast about. But guys, and if you're new or exploring this Jesus thing, this isn't about making us great. We should be about showing everybody how great Jesus is. We ought to be a church that's known for boasting and glorying and making much of Jesus Christ. And then third, we put no confidence in the flesh. Look, we all put confidence somewhere, and many of us just long for confidence. But our confidence in life isn't based in anything that we've done. I don't take my spiritual resume or credentials and hold it up in front of anybody to give me any kind of confidence. That's what Paul's saying. We put absolutely no confidence in. In the flesh, and then Paul transitions here. Let's go back to the text, verse 4. And, and this is interesting. In verse 4, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul's about to give us one of the most stunning self portraits of his journey with Jesus. And if, was, if there was anybody that could say, Man, I can brag about my credentials, about my spiritual resume. It was Paul. He says, I can brag more than any of you. Let me ask you guys this. Did any of you have any one-uppers in your life? You guys know what I'm talking about? It's, it's that story. Maybe it's at work. I don't know. Hope, I don't know. Maybe it's here. It's in your small group. I don't know. Um, you know, you tell that story, and then somebody's like, oh, yeah, but, but I, I've got one better. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's kind of like, um, so this past week was vacation week. Um, the kids and teachers had, had a week off um, from school. And so um, yesterday at basketball with some of my boys, I was having a conversation with a friend. Hey, tell me about vacation week. You know, you, you're swapping your stories. And, and it could go something like this, like my week. It, and, and here's the deal. Whether it's good or bad, like there's a one-upper. Even like for the bad things, uh, no, I've done something worse. So it's not just the good things. So this didn't happen yesterday, but I was just sitting here thinking about this one upper. It would be as if I shared about, okay, we'll start with the bad, you know, this week. Um, you know, I felt like we lived at the, at the doctor's office. I got one kid who starts the week with strep. The very next day, it turns into flu. We quarantine her for like two days and slide food underneath the door. And then another kid, is back at the doctor a day after that. You know, you're telling that story, and like, yeah, yeah, let me tell you about my week. Everybody got the flu. We were quarantined for 17 hours, 72 hours, and we almost died. You know, it's like, whatever you tell, or I tell them the good, it's like, yeah, you know, we did a family swim night at the Y. And, man, wasn't the weather amazing? And they're like, yeah, I went and swam with Mickey Mouse at Disney World. You know, what, this one-upper mentality. Hey, look, that's not what Paul's doing here. He's not trying to one-up. You see, the goal when, when people are trying to one-up, really, they're, they're very fragile. And, and they're trying to, to one-up somebody so that they can actually make themselves feel better and gain confidence. Paul's, Paul's not doing that. The reason he's saying, I can brag more, is he's saying, hey, if, if any of you think you have reason for confidence, hey, by the way, I've been down that road. And it's a dead end. And so he's not trying to one-up us. He's really trying to give us wisdom for life. And, and I pray that, that we would hear it that way. So how does he, how does he describe this? Look, look, at, look at his description. And we're going to see as he lays out his kind of spiritual resume, he's going to scrap it. But let's look at what's in it. In verse 5, he just gives a list of seven things. He starts, first of all, by talking about his birth privileges and rights that lead to his credentials, and then he talks about his religious and spiritual achievements. And so related to his birth privileges, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Go back to Genesis 17. This is a part of the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham, that there were, you were to be circumcised on the eighth day. Hey, yep, check that one off the list. Second, of the people of Israel. He's claiming here genealogical purity. His blood wasn't tainted by the Gentiles. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. Jerusalem, the holy city of David, was within Benjamin's territory. territory. And he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's not only talking here about his mother language, but his educational background and cultural position. And and as if that were enough, he continues, like, let me tell you now about some of my spiritual and religious achievements. Hey, you want to know about the law? I'm a Pharisee. I was a part of one of the most elite groups during Jesus' time. The, The Pharisees prided themselves in their obedience to the law. In fact, they added increasing stipulations to make sure that they kept the law and that they didn't break it. They were the morally superior group. Yep, I was a Pharisee. Second, as to Zill, a persecutor of the church, in fact, my confidence And my passion for obedience to the law was so intense that I persecuted the church. Go back and read Acts. You'll see the one who's there stoning Stephen is Paul. He's there. Also known formerly as Saul. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He doesn't say sinless. And I don't think Paul meant that. Because the law included, when you sin, what do you do? You go make atonement, right? There were sacrifices in the law. So Paul's not claiming to be sinless here, but he is claiming to be blameless. He says, in terms of my spiritual achievements and my credentials, I could hold them up, and I feel completely confident that I would pass the test. In fact, there's nobody that could brag and have a better resume than me. And yet he says in verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Hey, let me ask you a question. If you were to write out your spiritual credentials or resume right now, what would it look like? If you were to try to put your better self forward before God so that he might accept you, what would be on those credentials? Based on what Paul has shared here, it doesn't matter if you've been baptized in the church. You guys hear me? And I'm not just talking about the Catholic church. I'm talking about the Protestant church. It doesn't matter what church you grew up in. It doesn't matter what your family tradition was. And it doesn't matter how good you think you are. What Paul is going to reveal to us is there's only one thing that matters. That gaining acceptance before God isn't some play with our good versus our bad. It's how close you are to Jesus. What you do with Jesus is the only thing that will pass the test when you stand before God. And so that leads us to this last section here in 7 through 11. We must scrap our self-reliant credentials and on the positive, treasure knowing Christ. Philippians 3, 7-11, many say the, this contains the essence of Pauline theology. If you wanted to boil it down into a few verses, this would be it. I remember as a college student, man, as God was just lighting a fire, in my soul. I remember one of my, my good buddies in college, this was a passage that we memorized together. We'd be going on hikes in the Appalachian Mountains in North Carolina, and, and we would be talking about Philippians chapter 3. So if you're looking for a passage to meditate on, for God just to use to change your life, this is it. And I'm going to break it down into four sections here and under them it is a plea that you would make it your ongoing lifelong aim to do these four things. and the first one is this: Treasure Jesus above all things. I mean just just listen to Paul here. he's holding up his spiritual resume, and then he goes to verse seven, but whatever gain whatever what, whatever I would have gained by putting confidence in these things. I count as lost for the sake of Christ. He doesn't stop there. Indeed, I count everything. Everything. Guys, we need to hear this. He, He said, yeah, he said it. Everything. I count everything as loss because, here's the why, because of the surpassing worth. Of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. You hear that word rubbish there? He's not just saying I count it as, as worthless as loss. This is a term we could we could another term we could use here. Your translation might even have it dung, or refuse. Like, that's what I'm trying to get out with scrap. I, I thought about yesterday trash or flush. You're, like I was trying to think through like what would you do with dung? Like it's not gonna you're not gonna be thinking about it. Like that was his, like that ought to be some shock there. Paul's trying to get at that. He uses such strong language. Because in in Judaism and even that pursuit of obedience to the law, it had blinded him to his need for the grace of God in Christ. You you hear us talk about at Redemption Hill this word grace. Hey, if you're new with us, let me just give you a definition. Grace is just a word that simply means that it's, it's, it's receiving a gift that you didn't deserve. Which means you did nothing to earn it that that's grace. It's the unmerited, unearned favor of God. Paul didn't see that because he was obscured with the credentials that he was relying on. There's another passage echoing here, a passage from Jesus, a verse where Jesus says, "For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it." Here Here's what what happens. For Paul, Jesus became the treasure hidden in a field. You guys remember that parable? Jesus talks about the parable of there's a treasure, and when you find it, what do you do? You go sell everything for the treasure. Why? Because of its worth. It was so valuable that you would sell everything for the treasure. And and that's what Paul's doing. When he came to see Christ, he said, I'm not, these aren't lingering around with me. I count them as rubbish because of the surpassing worth. Jesus is someone who is worth losing everything for. And so, man, if you're new here and kind of exploring Jesus Here's the deal. I'm not trying to find a way to ease you into Christianity. I'm actually, I actually want you to see here that here's, here's the call. You lose everything. To respond to Jesus is to say, man, it's rubbish. I count it as, as loss. But on the flip side, you gain everything. Jesus plus nothing is everything. And that's what Paul's getting us to see here. And so, man, I just pray I would plead with you that you would make it your aim to treasure Jesus above all things. There is nothing. There is no relationship. There is no money. There is no education. There is no job worth missing out on Jesus. Renounce everything and come follow him. Second, Not only should we treasure knowing Jesus, we should believe in and be found in the righteousness of Christ. He continues in verse 9, and he says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The theological term for this is what you may hear us talk about justification justification is just a theological term that simply means that you have been counted right. You've been counted righteous. When you hear this word righteous, think of, think of a courtroom setting. Think of a courtroom setting. There's a judge there. You're showing up and you're on trial. And on trial is every, this whole list. Of everything that you've done. For us, standing on trial before God the judge, it's it's all of our disobedience, all of our sin, and not just external, it's motives, it's what's going on in our heart. Like, man, this is deep stuff. It's laid before God, and we're on trial before God. To be justified is to be declared not guilty. How are you gonna pass the judge? Here's the deal. God sees it all and he knows it all. It's not like you can show up on trial and man, I hope God doesn't see that one. Like, there's no hiding from God. So this is the beauty of the gospel. You're there on trial and God the judge puts forward his son. Jesus is there beside you. If we were to roll out the credentials of Christ not We wouldn't just say blameless or faultless. What would we say? He was sinless. He lived a perfect life. What does he deserve? He's on trial. What does he deserve? Does he deserve death? No, he deserves life. But here's what the judge does. Jesus is standing there and he says, Hey, judge, um, I'll take every single one of his debts. And the judge has a conversation that goes something like this. Hey, son, you know I can't cut you any discounts. You know that that for him to get off trial, you're going to have to pay for every single one of them. I can't hold back. And Jesus says, I'll take it. That's the gospel. When Jesus dies on the cross, he is taking everything that's been lined up against you. And he says, I'm dying for that. Justification is another way to say this is the great exchange. Jesus gets death and you get life. How? Look here at the text. Verse 9, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The only way that you can be justified or counted righteous, it's not by any there's no confidence you can put in yourself, all you bring or Even if you were to bring something good, trailing you would be all the sin that you've done. It is believing in Jesus. One commentator defines faith here as this. Moises Silva says, We could define faith as the act of counting as lost all those things that may be conceived of as grounds for self-confidence for God. So it's not just belief and faith in Jesus, it's belief that nothing that I've done in this life could ever amount to acceptance before God. And when you come to see and believe that your credentials will not stand up and you turn and embrace Jesus through faith, you are justified. You can be justified today By confessing your sin and believing in Jesus and his work on the cross. And you will go from death to life. You will be found in him. You will be in Christ. And God will accept you not because of what you've done, but because of Jesus who went on trial and took death for you. And you know the beauty when we start to embrace this truth? One of my favorite devotionals is a a book called A Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. And he says this, check this out. He's meditating on justification and righteousness. And he says, because of this, I never have to do a moment's labor to gain or maintain my justified status before God, freed from the burden of such a task. I don't have to put confidence in myself. I put it in Jesus. He says, I now can put my energies into enjoying God, pursuing holiness, and ministering God's amazing grace to others. As there is great rest when you rest from your works and trust in Jesus. So believe in and be found in the righteousness of Christ. The third, in verse 10, is this, pursue, know, and be transformed by Christ. The theological term for this is sanctification. You are justified through faith. And here's what Paul wants to make clear. You could think, oh, Jesus paid my penalty. It's not based on my works. It's based on his works. I can go live however I want. And Paul says, well, then you don't get the gospel. Because that same Jesus who took on your sin also empowers you to be just like him. Verse 10, that I may know him. We we could, some some translations take the that I may know him and say this, I make it my aim. My goal is, and, and that's the thrust of what Paul's saying. He's catching back up here with verse eight where he says the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. He's returning to this mindset of knowing. It's not just an intellectual knowledge. It is the aim of his life. I make it my aim to know him. And then what he does, here's how I know him. And it's not just an intellectual knowledge. It is an experiential encounter with Jesus through spirit-empowered, gospel-motivated obedience. He says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You know what's cool here? How long was it? How long had it been from when Paul had first encountered Jesus? Anybody know? Roughly 30 years. 30 years later. If I were to summarize my life, Paul's saying, this is my aim. I want to know Jesus. I still, 30 years later, Jesus is so rich that we will never exhaust the treasures of Christ. He is somebody worth pursuing your whole life for. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, he says this, knowing God fully we find ourselves fully satisfied, needing and desiring nothing more. When we make it our aim to know Him, this relationship fully satisfies us, and there is no need for more. Let me unpack these two ways Paul talks about knowing Christ. One is he says, experience the suffering and death of Christ. I'm going to talk about the second one, and then I'm going to come back to the resurrection. You'll see there, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. If we're going to say we're followers of Jesus, the man of sorrows, well, we're going to follow him on the path to suffering. And here's the deal. God often transforms us to be like Jesus through suffering. And suffering isn't something that normally we would choose, but God has taken even the ugly and the bad in this world, and he redeems it to make us make, use it as a tool in our lives to make us like Jesus. So just a few questions. How do you grow in humility? Get acquainted with the death of Christ. Didn't we study that in Philippians 2? Look at him who was exalted and glorying with with God. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. We grow in humility as we meditate on and get acquainted with the death of Christ. All right, let me ask you another one. How do you grow in your sacrificial love and service for others? Get acquainted with the death of Christ. I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom. Go to Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself. The way we grow in knowing Jesus is getting acquainted with the death of Jesus. So the more I consider myself dead to sin by by really meditating and believing in the death of Christ, I am going to be alive to God and Christ, and I'm going to know Jesus. So this knowing Jesus isn't just a theological textbook. It's not a systematic theology in your head. It's the person who knows Jesus and grows in humility. It's the person who knows the death of Christ and loves somebody with greater intensity than they've ever grown or served before. That's the person who's growing in their knowledge of Christ. And then second, he says, I want to grow in my knowledge through an experience of the resurrected power of Christ. I don't have time, but if you were to go study Ephesians... Paul prays in Ephesians 1, he says, I pray that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And you know the example, he says, here's the power in believers. He says, hey, let me tell you about that. Do you know the power that took Jesus and raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God? Do you know about that power? That is the same Holy Spirit power that's in you who believe. So for you who are wrestling with the ongoing presence of sin in your life today, I just want you to know, as you know Christ, you have the power in you to be alive to God in Christ as you learn about the resurrected power of Christ. We don't walk out of here defeated. We walk out of here with great hope because of this power. Amen. Son, this is good. Anybody enjoying this? and here's the deal, the more we can say we know Christ, there's just two reflections came to my mind this week. I think the more bold for Christ we'll be because we're bold about things we're confident in. And the more we know and are acquainted with Jesus and his death and resurrection, the more we're going to be bold with him before others. And then second, the more we're going to be content in life. J.I. Packer also says this in knowing God. He says, once you become aware that the main business you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place on their own accord. Contentment. It's not about increasing the dollars. It's not about increasing your resume. It's about knowing Jesus. Sufferings are about knowing Jesus. The good times are about knowing Jesus. And then finally, In verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead that we would be with Christ. The theological term for this is glorification. Justification happens when the initial faith Sanctification is the process that we're in right now. I'm becoming like Jesus. I've been declared righteous. Now I am becoming righteous through the power of the Spirit. And as I grow my understanding of the death of Christ. And one day, I will be glorified. The, the same resurrection, glorified body that Jesus had, we're all going to receive. This is going to be the, the ultimate You see, the the gospel doesn't end with us here. The gospel is about the great reversal that was lost in the beginning. We were made to be with God. Death is not the end of the story. Life is. And so we all eagerly await for the return of Christ where we will be resurrected. And and what Paul's saying here, Paul is not questioning. He's not doubting whether this is going to happen. Look ahead. Go to chapter 3, verse 20. You'll see he says this, chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. That's going to happen. What Paul doesn't know is, is it going to happen now or after I die? The circumstances and the timing of this glorification Guys, dream with me for a second as I wrap up. What would your life look like? What would our church look like if we all scrapped our self-reliant credentials and just made treasuring knowing Christ the central aim of our church and of ourselves? What would that be like? What would our groups be like? What would serving be like? What would our Sunday mornings be like? Ray Ortland, in his book, The Gospel, actually fleshes this out, and I love this. I want you to meditate on this as we wrap up. It's a little longer, so don't get, don't get lost with me, but, but, but dream with me. How wonderful is it to come every Sunday into a liberating church? All week long, we swim in an ocean of judgment and negative scrutiny, right? Our our credentials, our resumes, we're being judged. We constantly have to comply with the demands of a touchy world, and we never measure up. Then, on Sunday, we walk into a new kind of community where we discover an environment of grace in Christ alone. It is so refreshing. Sinners like us can breathe again. It's as if God simply changes everyone's topic of conversation from what's wrong with us, which is plenty, to what's right with Christ, which is endless. He replaces our negativity, finger-pointing, and self-hatred with the good news of his grace for the undeserving. Who couldn't come alive in a community that's constantly inhaling that in heavenly atmosphere. He goes on to say, gospel doctrine plus gospel culture equals gospel power. My prayer is that the gospel would be more and more prevalent in our church and in our lives So that the air that people breathe is not suffocating, but life-giving. Maybe even today, one of you takes the step from confidence in yourself to life in Jesus. You can do that right now by confessing your sins and believing in Jesus. I plead with you, count everything as loss. And come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father. You are good. And we are not. God, we often are obscured by our need for grace. Because we do like to cling to our self-reliant credentials. So God, my prayer right now is that you would help us to see ourselves accurately the way you see us. And that in humility, we would be able to scrap our credentials for Christ. And God, for those that have been justified, God, my prayer is that that Philippians 3.10 would be the aim of our lives. God, help us this week to know the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ in a way, experientially, not just intellectually, that we've never known before. That you would help us and use it to help us to kill sin, to love our spouses, to serve others, to treasure Jesus. God, we long for your return. And we can't wait for the day of glorification. But until then, God, we pray that this good news of the gospel would spread to the ends of the earth. We pray in Christ's name.